Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Um, more importantly, I have the pleasure of again speaking with Dr. Karen O'Brien Kopp, uh, who's a lecturer at the University of Roehampton. Um, in addition to new books, um, the podcast creates space for new developments in the field, initiatives, research projects. And today we'll be speaking with Karen about a fascinating figure named Feroz Mehta, um, whom she is researching. Um, And I'm sure by the end of the podcast, you will have a much clearer idea of who this individual is and and the significance of this research. Karen, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, and thank you very much for having me. Our pleasure, our pleasure. Um, Is this the third time you're on the podcast? Perhaps even the fourth, because you've been on with a couple joint efforts, I think. It might even be the fourth. Certainly, <laughs> <laughs> I've been enjoying the experience. Uh, indeed, Very much indeed. For me, uh, a further time. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, our pleasure. This is uh, you're you're scheduled for podcast number two hundred and seventeen. So clearly, this is not neither your first rodeo nor my first rodeo. Um, Feroz Meta, who is this? Feroz Mehta was a Indian philosopher of religion, we might say, who um, gathered a sizable community of followers in South London, particularly throughout the 1970s and 1980s, although he was giving talks before this time. And um, he was a very interesting figure who... I would argue, played a significant role in spreading Indian ideas about spirituality in the UK, um, particularly from the early 1970s onwards, and also had somewhat of an influence on the early professional development of yoga teaching in the UK, because there were some, uh, there was a group, a community of yoga teachers who picked up on some of his ideas and therefore changed the way that they practiced and talked about and um, disseminated ideas about yoga in Britain. So with this particular podcast, typically I'll read a book or or, 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 or gain a bunch of background information, but um, this podcast very much is um, um, geared towards public education insofar as I will be receiving my education about this gentleman in public <laughs> on the podcast. And so you're going to teach me what there is to know about him and why he's significant. Uh, in real time, and hopefully the listeners will learn a thing or two as well. So, what sort of activities was he engaged in? Was he uh, was he a, a speaker, a thinker, a writer? Was he an asana instructor? Like, what did he do? So he gave talks on Indian religion and philosophy from his home, primarily in South London, uh, which was a capacious uh, Victorian house uh, with a library. And he talked about um, all the systems of Indian philosophy, Vedanta, Sankhya, um, but he was really interested in these theosophical notions of 
universal religion, universal philosophy. So he actually also um, gave many talks on um, Kabbalah, on Christian ideas, um, on Buddhism as well as Hindu thought, on Zoroastrianism, sometimes on Taoism. Um, and he had a particular take because his initial training was in science. So he actually was a, a secondary school teacher for much of his professional life. Um, but he came from an early theosophical background. So he is one of those um, figures who really, whose story really spans the whole 20th century. We're going from, you know, 1902 until the 1990s when he died. And he, he was part of that early theosophical community in India and was part of the transmission of those ideas to the UK. So who was his primary audience? Who's attending his talks? Um, well, perhaps I could roll back um, from the 1970s to talk about some of the earlier um, contexts in which he shared ideas and, and, and was a teacher, really, um, because I think he spoke to different audiences at different times throughout the 20th century. He began in the 1920s um, and the 1930s at a time when he was very influenced by theosophy and Krishnamurti to start to hold um, what were called kind of spiritual camps in the UK in places such as Dorset, which is on the South Coast. And he shared ideas about philosophy and religion. He developed his own system of movement and breathing, very interesting, which, was, which he called theorhythm. And he also um, was very plugged into contemporary ideas about health and physical culture and diet and sunbathing and water cures and so forth. So, forth. so part of that kind of early um, physical culture discourse in the 1920s and 30s. So, I mean, that was one audience whereby he um, really spoke to families um, and he, he had a kind of a roster of, of some celebrity clients um, including the, the captain of the English cricket team, um, including some of the leading figures in um, women's physical culture movement in the UK. So that was kind of one quite important, I would say, wave of influence um, in the 1920s and 30s. Then in the 50s and 60s, he was more connected with the Buddhist society in London, and he began to give talks um, about Hindu and Buddhist thought at the Buddhist summer schools, which happened in and around uh, southern England. Uh, so that was another kind of wave in his in his influence. Um, and then I think from the 1970s and 80s, there was another shift again in, in which he really developed his own identity, his own community, which we could call the Firoz Mehta community. So they weren't, there were overlaps with um, people who adhered to the teachings of Krishnamurti or people who were connected to the Buddhist society, but there was a core group of what we might call followers um, or students of Feroz Mehta. Um, within that, he was really committed to theosophical ideas which centered on Vedanta. But as I said, he offered a quite um, interesting uh, range of teachings in his talks. Uh, so that he, he never just settled on one particular tradition. His audience were um, people who were already plugged into some of these spiritual discourses from Asia. 
um, who perhaps were already investigating Buddhism, um, primarily, I would say, white English class, uh, um, English middle class audiences. Um, interestingly, you know, I think he really built his core following around his home, which he called Dil Kusha in the 1970s, but it was a very different type of community to what we might imagine um, in terms of the, the countercultural movement or the hippie movement of the 1970s, which is much more socially radical. So this was quite a conservative, formal type of gathering. Uh, Feroz Mehta was all, always um, dressed in a, in a suit, a formal suit. Um, he was very dapper. When people came to his house, um, the, the talks were always preceded by tea and cake and this kind of mingling, and then people would proceed upstairs to the talk. So um, you, some of the people that I interviewed who are the um, members of that early community talked about this quiet formality. Um, and so they remembered other um, spiritual gatherings of the time in the 1970s, where the energy was much more effusive and um, people were embracing each other. And that didn't happen at the Feroz Mehta gatherings. It was very understated. You might shake hands with Feroz, perhaps not, but certainly there was, you know, it wasn't really the typical kind of flower power hippie um, mood of the 1970s that we might expect. It was something quite different, quite formal, uh, quite scholarly. Um, but it was it, it resulted in a in a community or a group who were not only loyal to Feroz Mehta, but but had bonds with each other which have endured up until the present day. So um, Indian spirituality with a bit of a stiffer upper lip, perhaps. <laughs> um, I mean, we have so to recall that um, Feroz Mehta was born in 1902 in India. He grew up as, um, as a young man in Sri Lanka. Um, but he would have been um, in his 70s by the time that he actually really started branching out with his own teachings during the 1970s. So he was already at a quite advanced stage in life. And I think that reflects some of the conservative values that we see in this particular group. So you, you've touched on this, um, um, but to what would you attribute his appeal? Why were people coming to him rather than other thinkers uh, or movements at the time? Well, this is a really interesting question. Uh, and so Perhaps here I could introduce my research project, um, which has been generously funded by the Southlands Methodist Trust at the University of Roehampton. Uh, and this has involved qualitative research whereby I've interviewed some of the um, surviving members of those early attendees. Sadly, um, other individuals whom I would have liked to have interviewed have um, since passed away. Um, but they speak about him um, as being a person of integrity, um, of truth. They felt that when they attended the talks with him, they didn't always understand all of the philosophical ideas that he was explaining, which they sometimes, sometimes found um, to be quite difficult to digest. He was a very scholarly writer and thinker. Um, but all of those talks have been, well, not all of them, but many or most of them have been recorded and catalogued um, over the years. So his followers always had a reel-to-reel -reel tape next to him 
and they recorded many of his talks onto cassette. So, so those talks are recorded and we can go back and, and listen to them um, and get a flavor of, of what those gatherings were like. But all of his followers spoke about what happened when the tape machine went off. So they were interested in um, the less rehearsed part of their time with him, where um, they felt that something um, transcendent came through him. So they were very clear, really, that there was um, something special, something distinguished about Feroz Mehta, which could only really be accessed by being in his presence. Um, and although actually, I even hesitate to to refer to this group as followers because they um, are very hesitant to call him a teacher. They don't really regard themselves as students. Um, they just see it as a a, a relationship of 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 listening and being in the presence of Feroz Meta. That's fascinating. How did you get um, How did you get into this character? How, how did he become an object of study for you? Well, the, the surviving members ran a trust called the uh, Feroz Mehta Trust, which uh, looked after his personal papers and also the online archive of his talks. And I became aware of them through um, their connection with uh, SOAS um, University of London, where I did my graduate studies and also lectured for a while. Um, and through some interactions there, I went to give a talk at the Feroz Meta Summer School, um, perhaps in 2016 or 2017. And I met some of the surviving members and started to hear some of their stories. Uh, I also met one of the early yoga teachers from this period. And as I learned something of their stories, um, I realized that there was a quite interesting oral history here that in a sense needed to be captured uh, because many of these individuals are now their 80s or 90s, um, in some cases late 90s. And so it was important to get um, a sense of who this figure was and what his contribution was um, to ideas about spirituality and discourses about spirituality in Britain. What, we, what would you say are some of the uh, distinctive or unique features of his platform, of his teachings, of his angle? Well, I think for anybody who is familiar with um, theosophy, that continued to underpin his teachings really throughout his life. Um, and he had several um, publications of so pretty much every decade. He wrote a book. So in the 1950s, he wrote a very scholarly book called Early Indian Religious Thought, where he went back to the Vedas, and back to the Upanishads, which I think really were the guiding texts for his ideas. Um, in the 1970s, he wrote a book called The Heart of Religion, where he argued that there is just one religion, but many paths. Um, so as far as he was concerned, um, there was just really one truth, one apprehension of truth. And he saw himself as presenting that through different means, be they Zoroastrian or um, Kabbalistic or Taoist or Vedanta. Um, at, but he also did dedicate some specific publications to particular traditions. So he wrote a book on Buddhism. He wrote a book on Zoroastrianism, for example. Um, but the key ideas were, I think, those ideas that would be familiar to anybody who's looked into theosophy and Krishnamurti, that... Um, 
there is no structured um, path to realization, to spiritual realization, that it's an individual process, that it comes through attention to the everyday. Um, it comes through attention to ordinary experience um, and that there are no, I mean, it's quite paradoxical, but there are no gurus. Um, there are no um, particular traditions that are elevated above others, for example. So, um, you know, I think it, it was a, a set of teachings that were, in a sense, quite historically rooted in theosophy, but resonated with these new ideas um, within the human potential movement in the 1970s. Do you feel that he either overtly or covertly might have privileged Indic ideas? I mean, irrespective of his his platform of uh, uh, universalism, right, or, or, or along the lines of you know the many paths um, to uh, awareness or truth or consciousness or however we want to phrase it. That isn't there something implicit to his platform and training and bent that prioritizes uh, Indic ideas, or, or would you say not necessarily? Well, I mean, this is the paradox. He absolutely did prioritize in Indic ideas, and he himself, if we look at the the main um, topics that he revisited time and time again, uh, he was really talking about Vedanta. Um, Brahman and Atman. He was really um, drawing on the Upanishads extensively, uh, but he brought them into um, a deep conversation with Buddhist ideas. So those were the two traditions that he explored most, um, discussed most in his talks and published on most extensively. Um, but I think he also had a way of presenting these ideas in a way that was quite decontextualized. So he presented them as um, these ideas that could be universally accessed and were universally available to everyone. Again, a key idea in theosophy. So, um, you know, the extent to which his followers, I suppose, really um, delved into the, the specifics of the philosophy, I think, um, in the Indian traditions was probably quite limited. So would you say that his following was not necessarily primarily interested in Indian spirituality? Or would you say that they were? And that's why they were drawn to him? Well, I mean, this is a, a question that I uh, posed directly to all of the um, interviewees, which were, I managed to interview, I think it was 10 people in the end. Um, so quite a small group um, who are now left, who studied with him in the early 70s. Um, and the answers varied. Uh, on the one hand, they fully acknowledged that, um, you know, they were very aware of his identity as a Zoroastrian teacher, um, as, a, you know, an Indian teacher of philosophy and religion. Uh, but on the other hand, many of them never traveled to Asia um, or didn't extensively investigate the culture and history of India. Others did, um, and they were, perhaps um, exceptional in that regard, in that they, you know, there were stories of people growing up in the 1950s and 60s with questions that they felt that um, traditions like Christianity couldn't answer. So they've been exploring or, or searching for answers in, for example, Buddhist traditions 
since the 1960s, and then they discovered Meta in the 70s. Um, so I think there was a kind of um, a, a mix there of, of kind of ways in which um, his followers really actually related to, to India. I can't tell you how many times I've heard words along those lines, uh, along the lines of um, uh, seeking uh, in ways uh, from people of, of Christian origin, where, you know, I couldn't find the answers in Christianity. Um, <laughs> I've heard that so many times at um, my own school of Indian wisdom, which, I mean, this is what, I mean, uh, half a century later than, than the time, you know, yeah. Uh, then the time and, and there still is, there still seems to be this this perennial quest for meaning and whether um, misguidedly or or wisely folks turning to quote unquote the East or quote unquote India for spiritual ideas I just I find that I find that utterly fascinating uh, not just in participating in it but also understanding these trends a, a couple of questions I have two lines of questions I'm trying to think of which one okay um. Why would you say, um, what's the significance of this figure? Uh, um, what does he tell us about larger trends within Indian religions or within that time period? Well, I think and this goes back to your point about Christianity, because um, it's interesting from the group that I interviewed, they were all born into a Christian tradition of one sort or another. And actually many were born into Catholicism specifically. Um, and they sometimes describe themselves with these quite synthetic or syncretic labels, such as I am now a, a Buddhist Catholic, um, for example. So they kind of adapted and reshaped existing traditions to be more accommodating to these new ideas that they encountered um, with Meta. But I think in, in a sense, um, these this, this group, which actually was quite a large group, um, he would have had um, groups of up to 30 people in his library for um, more than 25 years. He taught extensively at all kinds of um, summer schools and summer camps in the UK. He also traveled to Germany with a group annually. So he, he did reach a lot of people over the decades. And I think this is an early expression in the 1970s of what we now call spiritual but not religious communities. Um, so I think that's one of his contributions to, um, in a sense, providing a space for people to explore and express those um emerging identities where people are in a sense rejecting institutional religion that they've grown up with um and as you say they are looking for some kind of um different sets of answers to the kind of existential problems that they're encountering i mean that no, was what? that was one i think quite major contribution um and i mean if i may say that he had a particular relationship with a figure in the early 1970s an author called Fritjof Capra um, who went on to write a best-selling book called The Tao of Physics, um, which combined um, uh, these quote-unquote Eastern mystical ideas, this is how they were referred to in the 70s, but essentially Indian religion and philosophy primarily, um, as well as uh, Chinese religion and philosophy, with contemporary scientific ideas. And that was a very influential book for... Um, the beginnings of new religious movements or the new age movement, um, early spiritual but not religious 
communities. Um, and Fritjof Capra had two years of one-to-one -one meetings with Furoz Mehta, and he acknowledges this. He says, I didn't know much about um, you know, Indian philosophical ideas before I met Furoz, but I had these, uh, you know, this one-to-one -one, um, relationship with him which then was channeled into this best-selling book. So that, that's another way in which I think Feroz Mehta has had a, a, a somewhat invisible impact on the kind of increase in new religious movements and the, the whole New Age movement at the end of the 1970s. Can you say um, a bit more? Sorry, go on. Well, go on. And, and I would just say that we can talk about it separately, but I think he's had another important impact, as I mentioned, on the kind of nascent professionalization of yoga teaching in the UK and some of the ways in which um, his ideas were incorporated into yoga classes, really, um, some of the changes that happened there. So I think those probably are, are what I would identify at the moment as the, the three major ways in which his influence was felt, because his books, um, I, I don't think ever really sold very widely, partly because they weren't really presented in a very popular style. Um, I mean, his first book, um, Early Indian Religions, or Early Indian Religious Thought, um, has lots of primary source pa passages translated from Sanskrit and Pali, from the Buddhist canon, from the um, early Sanskrit canons. So those are not books that necessarily, you know, cross over easily into mass appeal, mass success. Could you say a bit more about his role as a Zoroastrian teacher that you touched on in passing? Uh, so he was born into a Zoroastrian family in, um, in Gujarat. Um, his father, um, his father's work then meant that the family moved to Sri Lanka. So he was raised, um, you know, very traditionally within the Zoroastrian um, faith. But his mother was also a committed theosophist and she would travel to Chennai to take part in the theosophical meetings with Annie Besant. So he had this concurrent influence in his childhood religiosity that was both Zoroastrian and theosophist. Um, so I think when he came to the UK, I think in, in some ways, and he was he was extremely successful um, professionally, I should say that he, when he was 18, he won two scholarships, two academic scholarships in the UK. One was at the Royal College of Music to train as a concert pianist, and the other was at Cambridge to study um, history and natural science or history and science. Um, but I think that when he did arrive in the UK and he studied at Cambridge, eventually he opted for the the degree in history and science, um, he somewhat minimised his own Zoroastrian or, or Parsi identity. And um, I would say that in the talks that he delivered from the 1950s until the 1990s, uh, he foregrounded his own interest in Buddhism and Hindu Vedanta much more than he ever did um, his knowledge about Zoroastrianism. And although he wrote a book um, uh, on uh, Zarathustra in the 1980s, he published that, um, and he gave um, quite a substantial number of talks on Zoroastrianism as part of this uh, Feroz Mehta community. 
he never really foregrounded it as um, central to the message I think that he was teaching. And interestingly, when I um, interviewed his followers, they were relatively well-versed in um, the other traditions that he taught about. Many of them picked up Kabbalah or Vedanta and really explored that in more depth, including after his death. But um, the, the kind of contact and engagement with Zoroastrianism was definitely less evident. Do you, if you had to offer some conjecture, do you feel that he um, ran with, you know, the, the, the sort of Hindu or, or Indic aspect of his training as a function of what most resonated with him or as a function of what was more marketable at the time? Well, I think it's a, a balance of both of those factors. Um it's partly what he was interested in because he was um, very much committed to theosophical ideas that engage with Buddhist and Vedantic thought. Um, I think he was also speaking to what, what his audience were interested in. Um, he was quite clear that he wasn't marketing anything. Um, and this is something that his followers have been very keen to elect. I, I, I just have to quickly quip that he was marketing that he wasn't marketing anything <laughs> that was his marketing message right and this was part of the kind of discursive strategy of of other figures like krishnamurti who was hugely influential um that um he wasn't a teacher um it wasn't a teacher student relationship there was no formal structure um and i mean from a kind of historical perspective, there wasn't that much of a formal structure to what he did at home, apart from give a talk um, or two on a weekly basis. Um, but his followers were quite keen to impress upon me that um, he never charged any money. And he said that if a teacher charged money, then there was no truth in it. Um, the only thing that he sometimes charged for was uh, reproducing a cassette, an audio cassette, because um, this is how his talks were shared between his followers and between different groups in the UK. It was all about audio cassettes. <laughs> and he would charge, they said, not for the product, but for the price of the cassette. So the price of the cassette would be charged. Um, so this, I mean, this is an interesting point that his followers um, stick to quite strictly, that he wasn't a teacher and he wasn't marketing anything apart from self-inquiry. I find it so fascinating that the very same students who went to him for his teachings would be <laughs> would be speaking of him as not a teacher. It's a walking contradiction. <laughs> um, it is, and they've they've all corrected me on this more or less that they um, objected to um, any reference to him as a teacher. Now, if we actually look at the kind of discourse of Krishnamurti around the same time, Krishnamurti was very insistent also that he wasn't a teacher um, because he didn't want there to be any kind of formal structure to the relationship. But um, there's certainly also the suggestion that um, teachers like Krishnamurti and Meta were quite resistant to being a teacher because that really is identified with being a guru and with that comes a great deal of responsibility for the student which um 
for a householder like for Osmita, because that's what he was. He had a wife, he had children, he had a job as a, well, he was retired certainly by the 70s, but he had um, other parts of his life. So he wasn't willing to take on the whole, I suppose, you know, karmic responsibility of the student I, in the way that I the can, relationship really does require. This um, this speaks to me on so many levels. I, I really get the sense that folks like uh, Meta and Krishnamurti, they're conflating or they're using the word teacher as capital T, teacher, guru. So yeah. they don't want to be a guru. They don't want the karmic enmeshment. They don't want the pedestal. Yeah. I completely relate to that, 100%. Uh, but without question, uh, you know, I'm just giving an example. For example, you know, I'm I'm nobody's guru, at least not in my online offerings. But without question, I teach, right? Whether it's um, academic teaching or spiritual teaching, if one wants to go to a cooking class or a mechanic um, 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 <laughs> seminar, uh, one is being taught. There's all kinds of secular instruction that's that's bereft of the baggage of. Parampara guru disciple relationship, and it just seems that when they use the word teacher, they mean capital T teacher. I'm not a capital T teacher, but 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 obviously they're 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 a teacher in the in in the in the in the pedestrian sense. In the pedestrian sense, but um, I mean, it's an interesting question as a researcher um, in terms of how we present the insider voices or how we foreground. Um, emic perspectives in our research, uh, if our interviewees are insisting that we avoid certain terms and they avoid them, then, then there's a question there about a responsibility to, to think about our own discourse as academics or to certainly draw attention to these um, uh, paradoxes perhaps in, in, in what's being talked about. Um, but I, I, it, I, you know, it's it's provided an interesting challenge for me. What other words can I use when I'm interviewing other than teacher and students, or, well, you know, adherent, follower, um, <laughs> in a personal relationship? It's it's quite difficult actually to find other words to really describe yeah. that relationship. I I often find you know, just speaking with students and clients and just people in general, I often find that what they say is quite telling, but not necessarily because of the content. So they're telling us things by virtue of the content. But there's so much more that that is telling about what they're prioritizing, what they're asking, what they're evading. And so what they're telling you is telling in terms of that itself is a fascinating object of research. Uh, The denial of teacherhood (laughs) within within a new religious movement and and um, sort of maybe this 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 appealing modern idea of, oh, I believe. Oh, what was it? I remember there's a Netflix special. uh, I think on Tony Robbins, if I'm not mistaken, called I Am Not Your Guru or something like that. Okay. So this is a very sort of captivating idea. And people want, um, people are, everyone needs mentorship or, or guidance or instruction. Oh. And people want that. But they also want that person to say, no, 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 I'm not doing that. I find that to be. Absolutely. Compelling. I mean, it's part, it's part of that quest that they each identify that turning away from institutional religion. So um, it's, you know, it's it's part of the solution they're seeking, not to replace one institution with another, but to, as you say, to, um, shall we say, um, embrace these ideas about freedom and individualism and quality individual pursuit. So it's very much part of the discourse of new religious movements, certainly by the late 1970s. 
Fascinating. So tell us a bit about um, the outputs of your research. Um, so the project um, is just wrapping up. There will be a scholarly article in a journal, but there are also several outputs that are public facing, one of which is a recording of a public talk that I gave in June at the University of Roehampton. So the recording of that will be online very soon. And there will be links to that from my research profile page on the University of Roehampton's website. Another output is um, intended as a, um, a public friendly summary of the whole project. So it's a visual timeline with lots of photographs of Frosmitter's life from um, the early 1910s in Sri Lanka with his family, um, within, you know, within his, uh, the bosom of his uh, Zoroastrian family, um, all the way up until pretty much the last talk he gave in the early 1990s in London. Uh, so that's a really engaging visual timeline with lots of captions um, and audio clips and some video clips taken from the archives of the Rose Mater Trust, but, but gathered in one quite succinct um, visual document. And um, we also have this wonderful podcast, of course, um, and there will be um, another uh it will be not so much a public facing talk, but it will be plugging into the South London community where he lived um, at Dilkusha for so many years. Uh, so it will be um, plugging into um, some interreligious training workshops that are being held by the Methodist community in South London. And I'll be sharing some highlights of um, the research project and also some of the oral history from the interviews that I conducted. Perhaps unsurprisingly, I so appreciate the public-facing dimension of your research. Um, I think um, it's it's so crucial in our times. Um, uh, uh, is this is this a topic that you will continue to research? What's what's the future of this project as far as you can foresee? Well, it's very interesting because um, I was very privileged not only to interview um, this group of of members. Um, from the community, but also to be given access to uh, Frosmeter's personal library. So I've been doing research in his library and um, I've also been given access to his scholarly archive, personal papers, lots of photographs. So um, although I've conceived of it as quite a, a small scale project, I can actually see that there is a whole larger project there that could be undertaken by myself. Or somebody else. Um, but there is a question mark over whether that will in fact materialize. Well, time will tell, as they say. And listen, uh, all of you uh, um, grad students and budding grad students out there are, are, are fascinated by this figure, um, you now perhaps have an avenue of research. Um, is there anything else about uh, this figure, his times, or the research that you'd like us to touch on before we close today? Well, I think it links back into the previous point about outstanding research, um, where I feel that I might just have, um, you know, touched the tip of an iceberg. But I did interview um, at least one surviving yoga teacher from that early period um, who gave me a glimpse into a kind of informal network of yoga teachers who were trained 
by 1970, 1972, um, and who started to share cassette tapes of Feroz Mehta's talks and between them started trying to shift an emphasis away from health and posture towards Indian philosophy. So they were very insistent about this, that um, there was a particular direction that um, Indian uh, derived yoga was pursuing in the in the sort of late 1960s, early 1970s, as it became embedded in local education contexts, it was really starting to be about health and fitness. Um, and these yoga teachers were in a sense pushing back against that and they wanted more instruction embedded in in everyday yoga classes on philosophy and um, meditation and breath work which um, was somewhat going against the trend um, for some of the more um, popular expressions of yoga that were developing at the time um, and so yeah there, there are some really interesting interviews where I've heard about these yoga teachers who would just play Feroz Mehta's, you know, audio tapes, whether or not their students wanted it, um, and would start to develop these subgroups. So gatherings in people's front rooms where they would then invite their yoga students to come and listen to recordings of Feroz Mehta. So in a sense, there was the whole central gathering around his home at Dilkusha, but there were these little splinter or satellite groups throughout the UK, the UK where that talk was then being shared um, to different smaller groups. So I think that's quite an interesting dimension um, of his work. And I think there's some there's some further research to be done there to really understand how influential that might have been. Fascinating. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, our pleasure, as always. Um, for those of you listening, once again, we've been speaking with Dr. Karen O'Brien Kopp about a fascinating uh, figure named Feroz Mehta, uh, a Zoroastrian teacher of Indian philosophy. Um, uh, keep well until next time. Uh, keep listening, keep reading, and keep contemplating these figures who've shaped our world, however visible or invisible they may be. Take care.